Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to the CME Group's podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen, and I'm the host of the podcast, Top Traders Unplugged. Today, I'm delighted to welcome you to a series of short conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. I'm joined by Amy elefante Bedi, Director of Head Strategies at Washington University Investment Management Company in St. Louis, Ernest Jafarin, who's the CEO of Efficient Capital Management, as well as Phil Hatsopoulos, who is the Global Head of Buy Side Sales at the CME Group. First of all, welcome and thank you for taking time out to join me for this conversation about managed futures. Before we jump into today's topics, share with me a short version of your own investment journey and how you got to where you are today. And Ernest, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your path in the managed futures industry. Well, I worked for a really uh, terrific trading firm called CRT, uh, which in the uh, 70s and 80s was the world's largest market maker in listed options. And uh, as I got to know their proprietary trading group in New York uh, in the Treasury Division, uh, I became uh, enthralled with the idea of creating a virtual proprietary trading desk. So I pitched that idea to senior management and they gave me a, a, a green light to research that prospect. And I discovered this whole world I didn't know existed uh, called CTAs. Uh, but I did a research project in 1990, 1991, uh, reading everything I could read uh, and doing a mathematical analysis of the space, seeing if we could build portfolios just using mathematical models as opposed to the traditional you know, qualitative due diligence approach. And became uh, convinced first that uh, this was a really resilient uh, asset class and that mathematical principles worked really well in the space. But the second thing is I fell in love with the space. Sure. I became convinced that uh, the CTA profile was really needed by institutional investors. It was not yet well understood. Uh, Professor John Lintner set the case forward really well. Uh, but someday everybody would have exposure to CTAs. And so I just made a career change. And from that point forward, dedicated my career to, to manage futures. Okay. Okay. And Amy, I know that you started out in this space by investing with CTAs on behalf of wealthy families back in the 90s. But I would love for you to share how endowments approach this space differently and why that is. So I first came into contact with CTA strategies while working at the old Greystone Partners in the mid-1990s. And it just seemed natural to us to use them as part of an optimal portfolio. 
the issue is that we created custom portfolios for all of our, our clients, and even running at moderate volatility, our funds occasionally had single-month returns that looked alarming on a standalone basis, and our clients were all too aware of that. So I became experienced early on in how challenging it can be to stick with a strategy for long enough for it to work. In my next stop at a multifamily office, we had pools of hedge fund investments for our clients. So our clients were somewhat protected from individual manager performance variability, and we had CTA exposure alongside other strategies like long-term equity, and I felt as if that worked a bit better. When I joined the Washington University Endowment in 2008, I was somewhat surprised to find that our portfolio had no exposure at all to macro. And when we began to dip a toe in the water, two things became apparent. One was that systematic macro firms still did not meet our definition of institutional quality. And the other was that there was a level of discomfort with black boxes that was difficult to overcome. For me, the positive effect of that has been that it's inspired me to educate myself more on the theory surrounding trend following and why it works. And I think it's made me a more effective investor in the space. But the negative is that it's limited our ability to allocate in significant enough size to really give us meaningful diversification benefit over time. And I think that problem is not unique to us. Sure, sure, absolutely. Now, Phil, just share with us a little bit of your background and, and how you engage with the managed futures industry today. Sure. So as the global head of uh, the buy-side sales team at the CME Group, uh, my team is responsible for covering CTA clients, and we interact with managers every day from a products and services standpoint. Um, we've committed uh, significant resources to our Managed Futures Initiative, which really focuses on bringing awareness, education, and networking opportunities to institutional investors uh, just in an effort to help raise assets for CTAs. And I really stress the education part with institutional investors because I think, you know, from our perspective, that's where we, we, we get the biggest, uh, we, make, we can make the biggest impact in the industry. Um, and it's really helping them ex- understand why they should allocate to the managed future space, right? And understanding the, uh, the value proposition and uncorrelated returns. And, and, and to help that process, we started uh, probably about four years ago our, um, our annual managed futures pinnacle awards. And that's really a great example of how we recognize managers and showcase the benefits of allocating to a managed future strategy for institutional investors. Sure, absolutely. Now, today's conversation will be part of a series where we'll discuss a few of the big topics that seem to always be on many investors' mind when it comes to hedge funds and managed futures, as well as a favorite topic in the financial press. But before we get to them, I wanted to start out with a slightly different question, although it's somewhat related, and that is the role of the traditional fund of funds business, especially in the light of the aftermath of the financial crisis where many of such firms have had to close shop as their value proposition, at least in the minds of investors, have diminished. And since you, Ernest, are a veteran in this area, why don't we start with you? What is the state of the fund of fund model today and and where do we go from here? Well, almost anybody I talk to on the institutional side Uh, still is thoroughly convinced of the importance of diversifying across a number of manager styles. Uh, And uh, I find overseas uh, uh, acquiring access via traditional fund of funds is still a very acceptable approach. But particularly in the States and sometimes outside of the States, uh, management boards have just taken the position uh, we're not going to pay a, quote, second layer of fees. Uh, And so the fund of funds models out. So here's what I've I've found. Uh, It's put 
uh, portfolio managers, investment managers in a very difficult kind of catch-22 position because on the one hand, they want to have CTA exposure. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they don't like the risk of buying one or two or maybe three programs. Uh, but then they don't have the infrastructure to, to do a full search and build out a well-balanced program. And even if they could, they don't have the infrastructure to actively manage that. So uh, we actually have some clients now who had sort of exited the CTA space, not because they wanted to, they just didn't know how to put those pieces together. Uh, but uh, it's a creative industry, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of creative thinking that is addressing these issues. Uh, for our part, uh, for example, we've created CTA Multistrat mm-hmm. products, which is uh, getting a very successful trading managers to partner together and create a single program, even though it really, when you lift the lid, is a combination of multiple programs. And so we found a great receptivity, right? Because it solved the problem. I'm getting the CTA exposure. I'm getting the diversification I need. I get the active management I need. And I can go to the investment board with a single institutionally appropriate uh, product. So I think what you're going to see going forward is a a continual movement towards creative solutions Mm -hmm. that allow institutions uh, to get access to this space in a way that's appropriate from their investment mandate perspective. Sure, sure. Now let me turn to you, Amy, as an institutional investor. How how do you prefer to find and to access the talent in the managed future space? So our entire portfolio is direct, and that's true of these strategies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we rely on our network and various industry databases to find investment ideas, and we do our own due diligence on them. We want to be able to target strategies that are most meaningfully diversifying to our portfolio um, and think that a custom approach makes sense in that regard. We also believe philosophically, as Ernest alluded to, that an important part of how we add value as investors and as for our institution is to develop relationships with our partners, and we haven't been um, comfortable outsourcing that. Sure. Sure. Now, some of our listeners today will certainly have this sort of DIY mindset and and maybe want to do it themselves and pick a few managers instead of buying a, a fund of funds. Um, so if I could just stay with you, Amy, for just a little while longer, if you were going to help them with a few questions that they should be asking uh, when selecting these managers, what, what would they be? Some of the questions that I ask of systematic managers are the same as I would for other strategies, um, but with a little bit of a a tilt. So how does the manager develop and test trading systems? Um, How does the manager think about building a portfolio across asset classes? What is the risk management system? Um, If something goes the wrong way, are they doing more of it or less of it? Um, To what extent is a manager focused on building out diversifying exposure to other types of strategies, potentially including fundamental drivers? Um, There can be a conflict between optimizing the fund's sharp ratio and optimizing my portfolio's sharp ratio um, because strategies that are diversifying to trend following may sacrifice the risk-taking properties that we're looking for. Um, Are there historical examples of manual interventions to cut risk? Um, In trend following, I'd really want those to be minimal. And then does the manager have an appropriate level of focus and resources devoted to trading costs? Mm -hmm. Um, Do they have reasonable plans for capacity? 
Um, there could be a tension between achieving institutional levels of resources and maintaining sufficient liquidity in trade markets that we expect to be most diversifying. Sure, sure, sure. Now, Ernest, you uh, have interviewed hundreds of, of managers in your, in your career, so I wanted to ask you whether there was kind of just one single key question that you have found to be the most important question to, to ask a manager mm-hmm. when, when you need to decide on, on your allocations. Yeah, I ask them if they'll guarantee never to have a losing month. <laughs> and besides that, <laughs> you know, it, it, I don't. I don't know that I can really be responsive to a single question. Sure. But I would add one piece uh, to what Amy's saying, and that's that the CTA space is unique in the broad alternative space, and that you get quantifiable daily numbers. Mm-hmm. It's a liquid space. And that gives you a lot of data points. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even before really talking to a manager, and, and, I, and I respect these questions, they're really good questions, but even before talking to a manager, a person can do really extensive quantitative work and really reach a decision, is this a manager that uh, I would choose to invest in purely mathematically mm-hmm. and then do the deep dive on the, on the qualitative due diligence questions? Sure. Sure, makes sense. On this topic, uh, Phil, as an exchange, have you seen a change in the investor base in managed futures when you look at the uh, when you look at your conversations that you have on on both sides of the fence, so to speak? At the CME Group, we have no direct insights into manager allocations, so it's very difficult for us to assess changing uh, the changing investor base outside of what we what we see that's publicly reported and what we get from various databases that we subscribe to. However, given that we've seen 27 straight months of inflows into managed futures, and this is according to Morningstar data, you know, there's no doubt investors are paying attention and allocating to the space. Right? So our goal at the CME Group with our initiative is, is to gain better analysis and granularity of the specific types of investors that are most interested in the space so we can target our efforts accordingly. So currently we're, we're focused on the institutional business but also understand that there's growing opportunities on the retail side, and, and ultimately our initiative is, our plan is for it to encompass all investor types to grow the, uh, to grow the industry. Sure, makes sense. Now, I recently saw a very large consultant who I think were consulting clients uh, with about $400 billion in assets under management discuss the issue of fees and how they are looking for ways to address the quote-unquote angry dollar fees, which I think is the term he used, for fees that are not aligned with the investor's interest, i.e. management fee. And I guess investors will always want to pay less fees and managers will want to protect these fees. So how do we find common ground when it you know, when it comes to this debate and where the parties are happy to work together and not always have to discuss this issue. Let me start with you, Amy, as an investor. What is the, what's the right kind of fees and, and what are the right levels of fees that investors should be paying, in your opinion? So in terms of the level, I think 2 and 20 will become increasingly rare, but there isn't really one size fits all for management fees, in, sure. in my opinion. The right level really depends on the manager's infrastructure and the level of assets under management. And ideally, we'd have enough of a partnership with our managers to understand what the manager needs to operate the business. Above a break-even level of assets under management, we've been pushing our managers to offer discounted fees to all limited partners, not just ourselves. 
Um, we also like to see hurdles in place, although there hasn't been that much receptivity on that as sure. of yet. And then, you know, you really have to look at the whole package. If you offer a reduced management fee and then pass through unreasonable levels of expenses, that doesn't help anyone. So I think it's important to be clear about, you know, each part of the equation. And then finally, on incentive fees, I think, you know, those aren't angry dollar fees for most people, but I think there's been a little bit of a supply-demand imbalance in the industry at times, and some of the shorter-term crystallizations that we've seen um, strike me as not very fair to the investor, and um, a lot of them have been going away, but we'd love to see that continue to happen. Sure, sure. Now, Ernest, um, as you mentioned yourself, you represent, uh, in many people's eyes, an additional layer of fees. So how have you innovated more specifically than maybe you alluded to earlier when it comes to this area of your business where you face both managers on one side and investors on on the other side? Have you, how have you solved that specifically? Yeah, well, there's there's two things. And, and first, let's start on the, on the manager side. Sure. Uh, I could present research uh, that supports this case, but I find that the happy relationship between institutional investors and managers is generally found on the incentive fee side. Mm. So what we've seen is a significant decrease on the management fee side, but an appropriate incentive fee that an institution can look at and say, you know, we don't care if they do well. If they do well, we'll do well. We can go to our board and and be good about saying we captured X percent of the profits. Sure. And this has become a very strong momentum. And to, to, to give a sense of the scale, you know, we've been running our fund um, since the early 2000s. When we first launched our fund, the average management fee was about one and a half percent. Today, the average management fee in our in our fund is, is a little over 20 basis points. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the managers and the investors are happy. Uh, on our side, uh, what we've found is we need to uh, align ourselves uh, with the managers to take more responsibility for the performance, shift risk from the investor to the manager. And so the way we've done that, I made reference to creating multi-strat product. And in a multi-strat product, we actually are the CTA. And the traders become investment advisors to the trading portfolio. So from an investor standpoint, they're paying a single fee. They're not paying a second layer of fees, but they're paying a single fee. And that has uh, proven to be very important to the investors and something that investment boards have uh, found acceptable as well. And how do you manage that with the managers then? Well, uh, multiple ways. Uh, Not every program isn't the same, but generally speaking, you're getting a management fee on the net result of of the returns. Mm -hmm. Some managers may have made money, some managers may have lost money. So you're only paying on the net result. What we do is we have two sort of standard approaches depending on the product. One is the managers share and share alike, regardless of the performance. And they actually see that as a diversifying source of income, right? Because there are going to be periods when I'm not good and somebody else is and so on, and it'll reverse and and it creates a more steady income stream. On some uh, more specialized products, uh, the managers are compensated based on the amount of contribution they've made to the ultimate return. Mm Um, and there are some reasons to do that. And in some cases, the managers prefer that as well. But the interesting point is that from an investor standpoint, 
what is done with the managers really doesn't matter. It's just a single fee. And of course, they're concerned uh, that the managers feel like they're in a fair product, right? But at, whether it's, it's paid equally or paid in proportion to the contribution from an investor perspective doesn't matter. I want to just stay with this, uh, just one, one, one more follow-up question, and that is doing it this way, where you, in a sense, have to get managers to do something they're not usually, or haven't done usually in the past, does it limit your universe? Have you found that? Or do you actually find that managers are quite open to thinking outside the box? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, we've had relation, we've I've got a relationship with a deep relationship with a manager manages over 30 billion and we invested before they had 150 million, right? But we have a self-selecting process. I mean, we have money with a lot of managers and we really don't talk to managers for whom that would be sort of not even a consideration. What I find is this. Uh, smaller managers in the world of the mega manager uh, that exists today, smaller managers realize that to be successful and really attract institutional interest, they've got a partner. Mm -hmm. They can't go in and be a $300 million manager and compete head-to-head -head with a $6 billion manager. Uh, so what we find is a high degree of cooperation among very talented managers, but not at the very top end of assets, but are in, the, in the growth area where they sure. still have a lot of room for growth uh, and recognize the need to partner. Sure, sure. What about you, Phil? The, the fee discussion when you're out speaking with the community, does, does that come up as an issue uh, on, on either side? Um, it, it, it doesn't really come up from our perspective with investors, right? So for investors, again, our um, you know our focus there is is you know we want to develop relationships as as Amy and, and Ernest mentioned earlier, right? We want to develop relationships and let them know that they can be comfortable viewing the exchange as as kind of a neutral resource on the education process where we're not promoting one manager over the other based on fees, but it's just really getting comfortable with with the asset class itself, right? Now, you know, on the, on the manager side, you know, that's a little bit different, right? They're, you know, what can we do for the managers to help, to help them maximize their returns, right? So for us, it's focusing on providing, uh, you know, deep liquid markets where there's less slippage in trading. It's um, creating trading incentives for, for various volumes, which we have in some products, notably FX, right? Which can help lower a manager's overall costs and to help them compete with, with you know, fee pressure on the investor side. Now let's jump to another topic that I've heard mentioned uh, quite a bit in the last uh, year or two. And here I'm referring to performance, or should I say lack of performance by hedge funds in general. But since we are focusing on managed futures, let's talk about the fact that CTAs at least based on the CTA indices, have generated about half the return in the last four years compared with what they did over the last 10 years. And to make things worse, the performance over the last 10 years is already much lower than what they were over the last 20 or 30 years. Ernest, let me turn to you uh, first on this one. Tell me why you think the course for this development of returns have been in the industry in general, because Clearly, there are exceptions. Well, actually, if you factor in a couple of things, the returns are not that inconsistent over the last 20 or 30 years. 
Uh, two big factors, if you go back quite a ways. Sure. Uh, the first is the volatility of the industry at large was much higher. A lot of CTAs said, you know what, to be institutional, we can't trade at a 30 volatility. Sure. So the average volatility of the managers has come down to a more uh, institutional level, and hence the returns have come down. The second factor, of course, is that there used to be a meaningful contribution uh, from interest rates. Uh, that contribution is, is gone. So when we do our analysis, we always factor for volatility and we always uh, in, uh, eliminate any interest rate exposure. But, you know, I'm a strong believer that the case really hasn't changed. And we analyze managers uh, all the time and we see that their performance opportunity has remained fairly static. But one thing that's really interesting is I always say, uh, you know, CTAs have a very hard life to live, right? Because it, it, true sort of core CTA investment is like synthetic long gamma in an options trade. And if you're always long options, you're, you're fighting, fighting, fighting for that time that comes along that is in your favor. Great from a portfolio standpoint, very frustrating from a trader's perspective. Okay. It may sound strange to say, but I mean, since the uh, 08 financial crisis, we really have not experienced another major financial earthquake. Mm. And if you study financial earthquakes over time, what you see is that they come with regularity. Uh, now, there's a lot of, we can talk about all the reasons why that's true, uh, but I just would simply say, I don't think the future of financial earthquakes is over. Uh, we might see the start of a financial earthquake in a few days uh, in the U.S. elections. We don't know. But the thing that's interesting about uh, earthquakes in the financial markets is that they take you by surprise. Mm. They're not what you're really looking for. And, they, and so um, I'm really making just two simple points. One is I don't think the returns have changed that much uh, once you factor in important variables. And secondly the sort of outsized opportunity that CTAs have captured historically have not been so prevalent in recent years, but there's no reason to believe they won't be prevalent in years to come. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.